You're listening to the sermon audio from Mill Creek Community Church. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com. Well, good morning. My name is Matt Gonzalez. I'm our pastoral assistant here at Mill Creek, and it is so good to have you all here with us this morning. Uh, We're going to be on page 602 of the chairback Bibles in front of you. Uh, It's Luke 13, or chapter 13, uh, verses 10 through 35. And if you grab one of those Bibles, surprise, we're actually about to get some new Bibles. So especially, feel free to take one this week uh, and give it to someone who you may know. If you don't have a Bible, we would love for you to have that one. And uh, just as a gift from us to you. But if you wouldn't, or if you would, uh, would you read with me? starting in verse 10 of chapter 13. It says this, the word of the Lord. Now he was teaching in one of the synagogues on the Sabbath. And behold, there was a woman who had a disabling spirit for 18 years. She was bent over and could not fully straighten herself. When Jesus saw her, he called her over and said to her, Woman, you are freed from your disability. And he laid his hands on her, and immediately she was made straight, and she glorified God. But the ruler of the synagogue, indignant because Jesus had healed on the Sabbath, said to the people, There are six days in which work ought to be done. Come on those days and be healed, and not on the Sabbath day. The Lord answered him, You hypocrites! Does not each of you on the Sabbath untie his ox or his donkey from the manger and lead it away to water it? And ought not this woman, a daughter of Abraham, whom Satan bound for 18 years, be loosed from this bond on the Sabbath day? As he said these things, all his adversaries were put to shame, and all the people rejoiced at the glorious things that were done by him. He said, therefore, what is the kingdom of God like, and to what shall I compare it? It is like a grain of mustard seed that a man took and sowed in his garden, and it grew and became a tree. And the birds of the air made nests in its branches. And again he said, To what shall I compare the kingdom of God? It is like leaven that a woman took and hid in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, those who are saved, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer to you. I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at the table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some who are last, there are some who are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. Now at that same, very same hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox, 
Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. God, thank you so much for today. Thank you for the gift of Jesus, the gift of your word, the gift of a church to gather together and to sit under the teaching of your word, to sing it, to to pray it together. God, would you work in us as Pastor Dave comes and preaches us, uh, preaches to us this morning, as he teaches us? Would your spirit be alive and active in us? Would it conform us to the image of Jesus? And would you get glory from this morning? We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you, Matt. It is a delight to be able to open up the Word of God with you all this morning. Uh, Pastor Jeremy and his family kind of taking a week away to be together. It's a blast to be able to, to be here. So if you're wondering, where's the normal guy who's teaching? We'll come back next week and he'll be here. Uh, now you have the abnormal guy who's preaching this morning. So welcome to Mill Creek. So a few years ago, um, my wife and I decided to uh, move in a very risky direction. We went from being people who were renting to people who decided that we should own a house. It wasn't a light decision, but we wanted to put down roots in the community that we had moved to, and we thought, oh, this is kind of a nervous stage of life, but it feels like the next right thing to do for us. And so we spent time driving around, we talked to a realtor or two, we, we dreamed about where we might want to live and dreamed about what we could afford, uh, that was always fun, and we found a, a brand new little subdivision on the outside of, of the town that we were wanting to live in, and there were like 10 homes built there. And beyond those 10 homes were just like dirt roads and just dreams out there. They were going to build about 150 more houses, and we thought, oh, this would be fun to get in on the ground floor of something brand new like this. So we saw a sign. We made a phone call, and before we knew it, we weren't just buying our first house. We decided to build our first house. Now, I look around, and I think, oh, there's some folks in here who are home builders and folks in here that have, have built homes or are building homes. And, and here's what I wish somebody would have told me all those decades ago when thinking about building our first home. There really are two distinct phases when you're building a home. The first phase is the fun phase where you're dreaming and you're plotting and you're planning and you're like, yes, this is what we want to look like. We look at the picture and we, we're like, this is it. Yay, it's so wonderful. Yeah, you have to sign some contracts and you know, sign away basically the rest of your life. But, but it's, it's really fun because the expectations are high and it's exciting. But then there's the second phase. When the building actually begins and your dreams start to get crumbled a little bit, as the costs go up and the walls get moved and the paints get changed and the light fixtures get too expensive, and the finished product oftentimes feels really similar in phase two than it did in phase one, but it's a little different. It's a a bit different than what you had expected. And and now I I get that not every one of us is, is... 
here this morning thinking, well, I'm looking forward to building a house this week. And some of you are like, I'm 14. I'm going to build a house for at least two more years. So to, to that, I'd say, uh, sure, that, that's wonderful. But, but all of us, though, like we, we walk through life and we have certain things that we expect or desire, hopes that, that we have that oftentimes don't turn out the way that we want them to. And the expectations get changed, not often by us, but oftentimes by something or someone else outside of us. It gets pressed in upon us. We might have hopes or expectations about where we want to go to school or where we want our kids to go to school or about relationships or, or family, what that might look like, or about what we want to do for a living or expectations about what we want to do or, in my case, more importantly, what we don't want to do on vacation. We have expectations that sometimes others press in and say, no, 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 the reality is it's not going to be that. It's going to be this instead. And if you're familiar with the, the story of the Bible, this, this happens all the time, where people walk into a situation, they have expectations and say, oh, I think it's going to be just like this. And then God shows up and says, oh, no, 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 it's going to be like this instead. You may think you know what's going on, you may think you have a clue, you may think you have control over a situation, but God says, oh, but really, I'm in control, and I'm going to do it like this, in a way that you may not expect for example, in the book of Luke that we've been walking through over the last few months, there's 13 times in the book of Luke when Jesus tells his followers that he is bringing and establishing and building something. It's not a house in this situation, but it's his kingdom. He's bringing and building and establishing God's kingdom here on earth. And because he's fully God, he knows what the end result will look like. Like He knows what the kingdom will, will be like one day. And yet he's surrounded by folks who are saying, well, we don't know. We think we know. We believe we know. We have some ideas, maybe some strong feelings about what we think it might be and who might be in it, but we really don't know at the end of the day. And so Jesus, as he often does, and in our passage today he's going to do this, he interacts with them and he says, oh, oh, friends, you still think we're in phase one of this building project where it's all dreams and maybe and what if, but I've got news for you. We're actually in phase two. I'm building something. I'm changing something. I'm doing it the way that I need to do it. Not the way that you thought it was going to be done, but the way that I need to build this kingdom. And it may look different than you expect. It may feel different than what you had hoped, but it is the right end result. My kingdom, Jesus says, is what I am building, and I'm inviting you to kind of look in and to peek in and to peer in and see what is happening in this kingdom. What does it look like? What does it feel like? And when Jesus speaks of the kingdom of God, he's, he's not talking about a geographically bound point on a map. The word kingdom, when he uses this word, it, it carries certain significance, this meaning of existence where God reigns completely and solely, where his absolute rule is carried out according to his perfect justice, mercy, and righteousness. Where God is in charge, God rules. I've, I've seen a very simple definition of God's kingdom as this. It's God's people in God's place under God's rule. And so when Jesus is talking about his kingdom, this is what he's talking about. Not a place, not taking over something with walls and a moat and putting on shiny armor. He's talking about his people in his place under his rule. 
And so if you have your Bibles and you haven't already turned to Luke 13, I'd encourage you to do that this morning so that you know that the words that we're talking about this morning are are not mine. I'm not trying to try to finagle things to make it sound like I'm really smart. I'm just trying to take what the Bible says here. That's what we do here at Mill Creek. We take what the Bible says, we want to unpack it and then apply it into our lives together this morning. And so if you haven't already turned there, please turn to Luke chapter 13. We'll begin with verse 10 through 17 where we have this first way to consider how different the kingdom is than we might expect and than they might have expected. So number one here, the purpose of the kingdom, Jesus says in verses 10 to 17, the purpose of the kingdom is different than you might expect. See, in verse 10, we're introduced to a, a woman who was at a synagogue where Jesus was teaching. And this woman has a disabling spirit for the past 18 years and was bent over And she could not straighten herself. But yet there she was, on the Sabbath, suffering for 18 years, present in her community, in the synagogue, sitting under the authority of of the teachers of the law and saying, "I, I need to be here. No excuses. She needs to be there. And so she was. And when Jesus saw her in verse 12, he called her over and he said to her, woman, you are freed from your disability. And I find it interesting that Jesus looking at her and acknowledging her, says, Lady, come here. You, you come to me. Knowing full well that it might have been a little bit embarrassing, might have taken a little more time, but he called her to him. And when she did, she obeyed. She had faith. It says in verse 13, he laid hands on her, and immediately she was made straight and glorified God. For the first time in 18 years, this woman could stand up, and when she stood up, the first thing she did was to glorify Jesus. And some people, when they saw this, they rejoiced with her. They were like, this is amazing. Let's rejoice. But others were so bound by their tradition, their spiritual rule following, that they couldn't stand what Jesus did. And we're introduced to that kind of person in verse 14. We're we're told the ruler of the synagogue. And this guy was indignant, which is a great word. You should use it all the time. He was indignant when Jesus healed this woman. He was so ticked off that he went public with his criticism. And rather than talking to Jesus directly, he, he looked around the crowds that were there and he talked to them about Jesus. And he's like, hey, hey, friends, listen, I'm cool with healings. Healings are great. They're wonderful. Isn't that, that's really awesome. Healings are, are pretty cool. Here's the problem, though. You did it on the wrong day, right? Because on the Sabbath day, we don't work. We don't, we don't do things like this. If, if you could just get unhealed somehow, and come back tomorrow, that would be, that'd be wonderful. In this house, that, that's kind of our, our rules. That's how we work here. And this, it was a master class in passive-aggressive moves by this guy. I, I, I appreciate his, his vigor. He says, Jesus, I'm going to tell you off, but I'm not going to talk to you. I'm going to talk to them, and I'm going to hope that you hear what I have to say to them because it's really, really important. But the problem was that this synagogue where this guy was a religious ruler It wasn't really his house. The synagogue was not his home. He wasn't in charge of things there. And this ruler entirely missed the purpose of the synagogue. And so Jesus, as he often does, goes on the offensive. And he accuses that religious leader of being a hypocrite, a pretender, a play actor, a mask wearer. And he illustrates his point in verses 15 through 17 and says, Man, you hypocrites. You can't be excited and rejoice that this woman is healed, but yet you would take your ox 
or your donkey, if it was thirsty, you take it and give it water on the Sabbath. Do you see the irony here? Well, leaders, you would value the life of your donkey over this woman made in the image of God, a daughter of Abraham. And Jesus loves and heals and straightens this woman and says to anybody who will listen, this is what my kingdom's like. This is not a bunch of rule following where if you do all the right things, you might get some attaboys, or if you do it on the right day, you get even more gold stars in your crown. No, the purpose of my kingdom, Jesus says, is her. It's taking that which was crooked and making it straight, to take that which was bound and loosening it. And these religious leaders heard Jesus describe the purpose of his kingdom loud and clear, and it ticked them off something fierce because in verse 17, it tells us that his adversaries were put to shame by what Jesus said. But the people, they rejoiced at all the glorious things that were being done and said by him. See, they heard for the first time, the people around Jesus heard and saw for the first time that God's kingdom, this up to this point, kind of this elusive idea that only the really religious people really understand, they had this glimmer of hope that the kingdom might actually be for them, that they may have a place in this kingdom too. And Jesus seizes this opportunity to go a little further and, and dig in on what the kingdom is like. And he makes this second statement in verses 18 through 21 of what the kingdom is like. And he says that the footprint of the kingdom is different than you might expect, too. Not only is the purpose of the kingdom different, not just rules, but it's about loosing and straightening. But the footprint of the kingdom is different than you might expect as well. And the, the footprint, when you're talking about building a house, every house structure has a certain footprint, the, the space that it takes up when a building is completed. And the kingdom of God, Luke tells his readers here, is it also has a footprint. In these four verses, Jesus uses a couple of parables or examples to describe the size of the kingdom that is being built. He says in verses 18 and 19, the, the kingdom is like a grain of mustard seed. That grows into a tree, and when it does, the birds of the air make nests in its branches. And then verses 20 and 21, he says that the, the kingdom is like leaven or, or yeast that a woman took and hid in, measures, in three measures of flour until it was all leavened. And what's really interesting here is that usually when we talk about leaven, it's usually a negative thing. Just the chapter before, if you flip back even one page in chapter 12, the beginning of that, Jesus says, Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees. Because they're hypocrites. Don't, don't let them infest you with their hypocrisy. Like leaven infests stuff. But here, leaven is used as a positive example. It's a positive way to describe his kingdom. It's a good thing. And, and maybe, maybe you know this. I, I really don't know this because I'm, I'm not really all that good at baking or, or cooking or really even boiling water. But some of us, like my, my friend John Drendel over there is a master baker, like, and he loves baking bread. And I wish he'd make me more bread. Uh, but, but he knows and he taught me that without yeast, obviously bread doesn't rise when you put it in the oven. But if you put too much yeast in, 
it just rises out of control. It takes over the pan, it takes over the oven, it takes over the kitchen, it takes over the whole house, and eventually the neighborhood. At least that's what I picture it doing, kind of like an Isle of Lucy episode or a Saturday morning cartoon or something. just takes over everything. But I, really don't, I don't know, I'm not really a baker. But we consider these two parables side by side, and they're both growth parables. They're both describing something that starts small and grows large. The small seed, you plant it, it becomes this huge this huge tree, this little tiny bit of leaven, it, it raises the whole piece, the whole bread. And the kingdom's ability to grow and to bring about change is both purposeful and powerful. And it's so important because here in, in Luke 13, Jesus is talking to a handful of his followers who are walking around with him, who are watching and listening to him. And in just a few months, these followers of Jesus are going to be sent out to the entire world to proclaim this kingdom and to proclaim Jesus and his good news and gospel. And how easy would it be for them to look around and go, oh, there's just so few of us. There's just a couple of us here. You want us to go do what? You want us to go tell the entire world about you? We could probably get a block or two, but that's about it. There's, there's not enough of us. But friends, the fact that we're sitting here now 2,000 years later, in Shawnee, Kansas, far away from mustard seeds and leaven and all that discussion, just reminds me, reminds you that God's kingdom is still expanding. It is still growing. It is not limited to a certain place on a dot, on a map. It's not just one lo location. It's worldwide, and God is doing something amazing as he's building his kingdom. His kingdom will grow, and it has grown, and it's grown from something that was barely imperceptible to something that is inevitable. It will. His name will. His kingdom will go to the ends of the earth. God has always worked from the small to the large. That's how he works. He works with the, the smallest, and he builds, and he creates, he expands. And he impacts. So the purpose of his kingdom is a little different than what his hearers or those around him might have expected. And the, the footprint is a little bit different as well. But in verses 22 to 30, our next section, the third, third kind of chunk of Scripture in here, we zero in on another very important part of the kingdom that Jesus says, don't miss this. He wants us to consider the, how the entrance of the kingdom might be a little different than you expect. The entrance of the kingdom. Look with me at verse 22 there. It says that Jesus went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Seems like an innocent enough question, but as I was studying this passage and kind of digging in on this question alone, I, I found that this was a commonly asked question that would actually divide teachers in Jesus' day. Like, this seems innocent enough, but this is a question more like saying, okay, are you for K-State or are you for KU? Like, this was a huge dividing question. Some, some when they asked this question, were expecting to hear, every Jew will be saved. That's what they were expecting. Some asked that saying, okay, so are all the Jews going to go to the kingdom of God? That's what I'm, I'm wondering. Others would say, no, 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 it's just a few people. 
who play by all the right rules and who barely make it in. It's just a couple folks who are going to make it in. And so this person, it sounds like an innocent enough question, is actually trying to trap Jesus into one, one of two categories. Is it everybody, all the Jews? Except for maybe the really worst of them, but all the Jews for the most part or just a couple of people going to make it in? And thankfully, Jesus refuses to speculate on them, talking about those people hypothetically out there. And he turns the table, as he often does, and he looks at this person and he says, let's talk about you for a second here. Don't be worried about them out there. Let's talk about you. You see that in verse 24. There's, there's this implied person he's speaking to, and he says, strive to enter through the narrow door. He's saying, you strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. For when the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I don't know where you came from. And then you'll begin to say, well, we ate and we drank in your presence and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. You have to acknowledge that we are, as a society, as a culture, we are pretty critical of people who are narrow-minded. In fact, being called narrow-minded is almost like this curse word that you could call somebody in today's cultural conversation. You're just too narrow-minded. You need to have your mind broadened. Be wider in your understanding. But friends, this passage here, these verses here, again, not my words, these are God's words, talking about his kingdom and his way, what is best by his understanding and definition. And he says the door, the entrance to God's kingdom is narrow. It's not broad, it's not wide, it is narrow. And this is not something that Christians should shy away from. This is central to the Christian faith, that there is one way to God. There is one way into his kingdom. And this whole section of Luke's gospel describes the narrowness of salvation and the urgency of getting our relationship with God settled here and now while there is still time. It's not a good time to postpone it until, don't wait until you're on your deathbed for the door into the kingdom of God is open now. But there will be a day and a time when the door is shut and it will be too late. There's going to be a time when some are standing on the porch and saying, Lord, but we were with you. Why would you shut the door on us? We hung out all the same places. We went to the same Starbucks in the same neighborhood. We, we were with you. you. You know us, Right? We've got to be on your guest list. Please check your guest list one more time and open the door. But here's the thing that this passage is reminding us about the kingdom, reminding us about Christianity as a whole, is that temporary proximity to Jesus does not equal eternal security. Being next to, being around Jesus for a period of time Talking about him, investigating him, thinking about him, it does not equate 
to being secure with him for eternity. I mean, Judas is one of the best examples the Bible can give of what that is like. Somebody who walked with him for years, who, who knew what kind of breakfast Jesus liked best. And yet Judas is not with Jesus. See, there's all kinds of people in this world today who can know all sorts of things about Jesus but don't really know him. And there's so many people in our churches and the culture today that have eternal language but do not have eternal life. And this passage is a warning for us, friends. It's a chilling warning here that people are going to come up and say, Lord, Lord, and Jesus' response will be, I don't know who you are. I don't know where you came from. He describes the scene once the door has been shut in verse 28 like this. He says, there's going to be weeping and gnashing of teeth because you're going to see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourself, you're on the outside. And it's almost like this door that has been closed and slammed shut has this huge window in it where they can be on the outside and still look in and say, well, there's Abraham and there's Isaac, there's prophets, and there's other people there too. And he says there's people from the east and the west and north and the south. They're going to be reclining at the table and you're not. You're going to be on the outside looking in. Some of those people from the east and west and north and south are those who have been told that they've got to follow rules well enough to make it in. But Jesus says, no, 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 no. Not in my kingdom. In my kingdom, some of the last will be first and some who think themselves to be first because of all their own personal righteousness, it's actually going to be last. When they get to the door, they're not going to be let in. And there's no, no number of good deeds that they can bring to the door. There's no religious enough parents that they can rely upon and say, well, mom and dad did this. There's no good rule following that will ever get someone into the kingdom of God. So when asked the question, will those who are saved be few, Jesus says, everyone in the kingdom, everybody inside the house will enter through the narrow door. That's the only way in. There will be some dining with the master of the house that might be a bit of a surprise, as well as there might be a surprise that some are on the outside looking in. These are unexpected things for these hearers to hear, for us to consider even today about the kingdom. And as Jesus has been talking about the unexpected purpose and footprint and entrance, there's one last section, there's one last thing about the kingdom that Jesus says. As we have walking through the end of our chapter, and he says this, that the owner of the kingdom is different than you might expect. The person in charge might be a little bit different than you may expect. We're told in verse 31 that at that very hour, there's some Pharisees that came and said, Jesus, you got to get out of here, man. you got to leave this area because Herod, remember, he's the king. He's the religious leader or the, the, the political leader of that region of the world. Herod, they're saying, hey, that guy wants you dead. You better run, Jesus. Get out of here. 
And maybe they had some genuine concern for him, or maybe they just wanted to get Jesus out of their hair into somebody else's area. I, I really, we really don't know. But either way, Jesus' response to them is just really interesting. He says in verse 32, to those Pharisees, it says, go and tell that fox, behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I finish my course. I love Jesus because Jesus has a sarcastic bone. I love him for this. He says, oh, oh Herod thinks he's calling the shots? Her Herod, that guy over there who's in his little palace over there making decisions? Oh, guess what? Herod's not the ruler of my kingdom. Herod's not the owner of this kingdom. Somebody else is. And so he says, go tell that fox, I got stuff to do. I got a mission that I'm on. I've got to fulfill and finish my course. Herod, you don't have the power to interrupt my ministry because Herod was not the king of God's kingdom. He wasn't calling any shots and Jesus knew it. And so he says to him in verse 33, I'm going to go on my way today and tomorrow, the day after that. For a prophet cannot perish away from Jerusalem. So again, his eyes have been focused on going to Jerusalem for many chapters now. He knows that his story takes him to Jerusalem. And it takes him to a, to a painful, brutal cross. He knows this, and yet his eyes focused on Jerusalem. He knows he's not going to be killed there in the countryside. Herod's not going to kill him there. If he knows if, he, if he's going to die, he's going to die in Jerusalem like all the other prophets preaching God's true word. And as he thinks about Jerusalem, his heart, I could just kind of picture his heart welling up over this place that he's going to. And so he, he says in verse 34, Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. The city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing? Behold, your house is forsaken. And I tell you, you will not see me until blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And this is the first of four times that Jesus is going to lament to express this great deep sorrow over Jerusalem and the inhabitants of this city, over the heart condition of the people in the city who he loves, the city that was supposed to be there for the, the service of the true kingdom. And the true king was instead the place where prophets were being slaughtered. And Jesus knew when it was his time, he joined that list. And he longed for people to turn to him, but they refused. And even though they'd be shouting out just a couple weeks later, waving their little palm branches, Hosanna, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. They, they were going to wave him in and bring him into the city of Jerusalem, but he knew. He knew that their hearts truly were not his. He knew that even though they may look and sound and self-identify as religious people, he knew who they were. And they did not really know who he was. They didn't know that he was the true king. 
the one who is truly in charge, the true owner of the kingdom. They expected and they even settled for somebody else like Herod, and they missed the true master of the kingdom. And that brings us to the end of our, our passage, the end of our chapter this morning that we're considering. And so, as we often do, I want to try to kind of press in a, a couple of points of application, just ways to, to walk out of here saying, okay, what, what do we do with this? Well, the first thing we see on the screen is this. Enter God's kingdom through the narrow door of Jesus. Enter God's kingdom through the narrow door of Jesus. And this comes right out of verse 24. When Jesus says, you've got to strive to enter through the narrow door, he's not just talking about a a door that swings one way or a really small spot. He's talking about him. He's saying, you must, if you want to enter the kingdom, you've got to do business with me. Jesus is that narrow door that we have to go through, we have to walk through to enter into God's kingdom. If you want to be included in God's house and his household, you must get there through Jesus and through no other work of your own, through no other religious activity, but through Christ and Christ alone. He alone is the way, the truth, and the life. But what this text stresses to us very clearly, friends, it's an important fact that you can't just know a lot about Jesus to get through that narrow door. See, it's not enough to know that Jesus stepped from heaven and came to earth or that he lived a sinless life. You can read the Bible and see that Jesus died on the cross as a payment for sin or that he rose from the dead and defeated death. You can can know that he ascended to the Father and advocates there today. You can know that Jesus brings a gift of eternal life to anybody who would receive it. You can know all those things and lots of people know those things. And yet I'm convinced that eternal separation from God, what is described here as this place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, will be filled with people who memorized all sorts of Bible verses in the Wana clubs or through navigators in college. All sorts of people who sat for decades in churches and listened to God's word being preached and never actually responded to Jesus. They could be filled with people who gave away their money and filled their calendar doing lots of really great stuff for Jesus, but never actually knew him. And the difference between those who enter the narrow door and those who find it locked is razor thin. And it truly, honestly hinges on two little words, and those words are for and you. For you. See, friends, you can't just believe that Jesus stepped from heaven and came to earth. You have to believe that he came and did this for you. You can't just believe he died on the cross as payment for sin. You have to believe he died on the cross for your sin as payment for your sin. He rose from the dead and defeated death, not just for somebody else, but for you. And he ascended to the Father and advocates today for you. And he brings the gift of eternal life for you today. Not for somebody else, not for them, but for you right now, in this place, this day. And if you're here this morning and you have not believed that what Jesus did was for you, if you find yourself thinking, yeah, I believe lots of stuff about Jesus, let me just ask you this morning, 
What's going to get you through that door? That narrow door? Is it going to be all the stuff that you memorized about Jesus? All the stuff that you know about him? All the things that you heard from your mom or dad or from friends? You're going to bring this big bag of just good works and set it before the door and say, I hope this is enough. Would you let me through? Because I've got some really bad news for us. That's not how you get through the narrow door of Jesus. Friends, we have to say, Jesus, Jesus, you're right. I need you. I'm a sinner. I believe you can and you will and you do forgive me. I trust you to change my nature. Make me a new creation in you, Christ. Make me your son or daughter. But you have to pray that. You have to ask that. You have to believe that. And repent of your sin and turn and follow Jesus. Don't just know it. You have to believe it. If you have questions about what this looks like, man, I'll be up here afterwards. Or anybody up on the stage, find, find them. Just ask these questions today. Do business with Jesus today. Don't wait till tomorrow. I don't know when that door is going to be shut. You don't know when that door is going to be shut. But today it's open. And Jesus is saying, come here. Come here. But maybe you're here this morning and you say, well, Pastor Dave, I, I know I'm in God's kingdom because I've, I have repented of my sin. I, I've trusted in Jesus and my righteousness is not in me. It's, my righteousness is because of what Christ has done. I, I just want to say, awesome. That's incredible. What a beautiful gift that is. But perhaps this is your application. This is my application today. And church, don't be a Christian hypocrite in God's kingdom. Don't run around pretending that you are something that you are not. Because just like Jesus is the only way for someone to get into the kingdom of heaven, Jesus is the only way for us to live in the kingdom of heaven. If you're a follower of Jesus, you know you can never make yourself right before God, that you needed a substitute, that you needed Christ to die and rise again and take our sin and give us his righteousness. But friends, if you try to live this life as a follower of Jesus, thinking that you can amass enough righteous activity, thoughts, or words without Christ, then you're doing what the religious hypocrite does. You are play-acting, you are pretending, and you need to take off the mask stare Jesus face to face and say, I'm sorry. Because hypocrisy is not just a problem for them, for those people out there. Friends, this is a problem right here in my heart and right here in this church, in your lives as well. Hypocrisy is dangerous because it steals away the focus it says, look at me, look at me, look what I can do, look what I can do, look what I can do. Jesus, Jesus, look at me, look how good I am. Come here, look at me, look at me. When our lives, if we're following Christ, really ought to be, thank you, Jesus. Thank you. I'm pointing people to you. I'm going to get out of the way. I want them to look at you, how good you are, Jesus. See, you don't walk in to the kingdom of God through the narrow door and expect 
to walk into a house where your picture is plastered everywhere, where you have the the seat of honor at the table and it's all about you inside the house. No, 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 no. It's God's kingdom. You're invited to recline at the table with the master of the house. You are not the master of the house. Friends, there is one There is one name on the deed to the house, and that name is not yours. The name on the deed of the house, the kingdom of God, is Jesus Christ. The Lord, the Savior, the Messiah, it is His name and not yours. And friends, we, we are not in charge. Don't act like it. Follow, submit, trust, and obey. There's no other way. We're either His or we're ours. We're either in or we're out. There's no in-between when it comes to the kingdom. And one of the ways that Christians publicly declare with our lives and our activities as we gather together that Jesus is the only one calling the shots is here at the table of communion. If you like what you've heard or want to find out more information, please visit our website at mymillcreek.com.